This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, we join the hunt for the missing crypto queen. Jamie Bartlett, author of a new book about the murky world of OneCoin, a scam that lost investors billions of dollars, joins us alongside one of the victims, Leila Begum. Dr. Ruja Ignatova is an Oxford-educated, self-styled cryptocurrency guru who promised her followers a financial revolution. Her project, OneCoin, would not only earn its investors untold fortunes, but also change the world, she claimed often to her crowds numbering in the thousands. Then in October 2017, she disappeared. But not before she had duped investors around the world, some of whom made up some of the poorest people in society, into buying more than $4 billion worth of OneCoin. Ignatova has been in hiding ever since and was recently added to Europol and the FBI's most wanted lists. The story, which was originally adapted into a podcast series for the BBC, is now a new book, The Missing Crypto Queen by Jamie Bartlett. Jamie is an expert on the politics of the internet, and recently he joined Carl Miller, research director at the Center for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos, in conversation. They were also joined by Leila Begum, a business development executive who was one of the many victims of the OneCoin scandal. Here's Carl with more. Jamie, Leila, a very, very warm welcome to you both. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for having us. All right. So let's let's start at the beginning, Leila, with you, the origins of all of this. So so do you remember the kind of first time that you heard about OneCoin? Absolutely, yes. Thanks for having me on the show. I uh, first attended OneCoin event with a family friend of mine who I've known for 12 years. So he was already involved in OneCoin. I believe he probably attended the Wembley event when Dr. Ruja was here back in 2016. That must have been around June. So the event that I attended to support him as a Emerald leader within OneCoin. So that was my first introduction. But actually, I purely went to support my friend at that time on his new innovative uh, executive business rather than investing in the OneCoin myself. So that was back in 2016. 2016. And Jamie, what were the, the roots? What, what, what led up to that event that, that Leila was, was going to visit? Well, I'm so glad Leila's here as well to give us that perspective on it all. I think when Leila, when you went to your first OneCoin event there, you, probably it was really at the height of the OneCoin bubble, if you like. 2016 at Wembley was when Ruja in June of 2016 was in front of 3,000 adoring fans by that point, already something like two to three billion euros had been invested into OneCoin. But actually, it had taken a couple of years to get to that point. The, the whole thing started in, in August 2014. Bitcoin was sort of 
bubbling along, I don't know, $300, $400. It had already had a couple of surges. It was slowly making its way into the, I guess that probably at that point, the, the technology mainstream rather than the mainstream mainstream as an interesting, strange currency, but that had been going up rapidly in value. And Ruja turns up and says, Bitcoin's great, it's fascinating, but one coin's better. And she was really clever with this. She says, Bitcoin is technical, it's for geeks, it's for nerds, it's decentralized. People use it to buy drugs off the dark net. It's the revolution we've been waiting for, but it's not quite right. And I've got a better one. It's for you ordinary people. And I think during the podcast, when we did the podcast, I didn't realize maybe how powerful that sort of twisting of you're taking Bitcoin's problems and claiming you'd fix them. So this was for you, the ordinary person who'd missed out. But this was now your chance. Forget the techies and the nerds. That was the thing that helped it fly. And but between that moment in August 2014, all the way up to when Layla turns up at a Wembley, at, sorry, at, at a seminar in London, you know, two two years later or whatever, the thing just spreads rapidly. 175 countries, possibly as many as a million people invested. So and the speed is remarkable. Um, I can back this up as well, um, Carl. So when I actually turned up at the event to support my friend and it, the event was really packed up, there were lots of local people, lots of immigrants, ethnically diverse people like myself, Muslim in hijab, um, lots of local people that had really little knowledge and they, they just went in because there was a new hype and they were going to miss out on a cryptocurrency that they've never heard of because it's very similar to Bitcoin. So the event was sold out and there were lots of other leaders that actually made it to the top in, you know, just boasting about Ruja and the next event. But it wasn't like that in the next few weeks until I actually realized what had happened. But actually, in order to get involved in these um, network events, you have to go through people that have invited you because they, they tell you about this next big thing and you'll be sad if you don't attend, you'll be sad if you don't sign up, you know, you, you're just meeting, missing out because it's digital. And I think for me, it was just lack of knowledge. What is digital, digital cryptocurrency? And that's how it started for me. Leila, I saw, I saw you nodding when, when, when you, we were hearing Jamie's description there. Was, was that the kind of essential pitch to you when you turned up? It was Absolutely. all the opportunity of Bitcoin, you know, but, but none of the kind of difficult technical you know, problematic kind of, you know, um, kind of, you know, spaghetti junction of kind of technical terms. It was all just simply laid out. They were using lots of sophisticated language and emotional triggering, such as, you know, you're doing a nine to five deal. That's just really boring. Don't you want to do something better? Do you always want to be on the very basic salary? Don't you want to earn a life, you know, have a financial freedom? And they actually had lots of motivational speakers, lots of ethnically um, South Asian people that were there presented wearing really you know, smart outfit and just trying to link in and show that they've actually had a better life. And if we don't sign up to this cryptocurrency one coin, we'll miss out. So already the, the leader that I actually wanted to to support, he was already th believing that he's doing the right thing and he's involved and he'll recruit me and recruit other people. So it was very motivational, it was very powerful. What really got me to actually believe one coin was really cryptocurrency when they started talking about Sharia compliance, and it's, the, it's a halal investment and it's Muslim friendly. And the room was full of people like me that wore hijab, 
lots of Muslim men. And I think that kind of was my motivation as in, oh, maybe I am missing something out. Maybe this is cryptocurrency. Maybe this is the new thing that I actually never heard of. And that it's right what Jamie's saying. They were using lots of keywords to lure people in. What, how long was it from that first event to when you first started putting money into OneCoin? Okay, so for me, it was it was straight away, I think it, in two days' time, because the person that introduced me was my family friend of 12 years, who I had, he, he was one of my best friends, one of my male best friends, non-romantic relation, purely platonic. So uh, like a brother, I used to come to my house, my family knew him, my friend knew him, you know, I knew about his lifestyle, his jobs. We were also work colleagues. So for, it was easy for him to convince me in two days' time, start off with £6,900, get a typhoon. Then slowly, slowly, he started asking me to put in more and more because the more I was putting in, the more I was going to be paying out within three months. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't hesitate because I think my relationship with him throughout the 12 years that I'd known him was purely trustworthy. There was no room for me to doubt. I just felt that I didn't have the uh, knowledge or intelligence to actually believe this was a scam. I'd never have to doubt him because we never had that kind of conflicting or misunderstanding in our friendship for the 12 years. Jamie, I- unpack the alchemy for us here. How, how had OneCoin got so good at summoning up the kind of trust and authority and all the things, in fact, it needed to kind of do make a conversion that fast, two days from the first event to actually putting money in. I mean, it's remarkable. Two days. I didn't. I don't think I realised it was quite that quick, uh, Layla. But your story isn't unfamiliar. That can be the speed, and it's often two days. And then two days later, you've got your friends and family putting their money in. And two days later, they've got their friends and family putting their money in. And there's a there's a couple of reasons for well there's lots of reasons for this but there's a couple that really stand out. In the podcast we never really talked about Rouge's co-founder. We focused really on her because she's the missing one. But there's another person that's absolutely key to this story and his name is Sebastian Greenwood. He's currently sitting in a prison cell awaiting a trial in New York. He was the multi-level marketing side of the company. If Ruja was the financial genius who kind of understood the tech and put herself forward as the as the front, the face of this company, he was behind the scenes working on the sales techniques and the strategies. And his world was not cryptocurrency or finance. It was multi-level marketing. And multi-level marketing, people have probably heard of Amway, Tupper, Tupperware, Avon, Herbalife. And it's just it's a technique of selling where you might bring your friends around and sell them some vitamins and get a small commission. And then you recruit them to bring their friends and family in and you get a small commission of what they sell. And this grows into a giant pyramid. That's why it can grow so quickly and it can cross continents in a day because suddenly you're selling to your friends and family over the other side of the world via a seminar. People have often wondered, how did it reach 175 countries so fast? Because it was going from Sofia to London to Pakistan to India to Uganda in three days. It spread. So because it was sold through multi-level marketing, it was based on the trust that you had in the person that sold it to you. So because like Layla's experience, it was a friend, it was a family member who thought they'd got in on the big thing and wanted to share with you their amazing new opportunity. You didn't know the tech. You didn't understand Bitcoin very well, but you trusted your friend 
you trusted your friend wouldn't rip you off. And also, I'd like to add on this one. It, it is a lot to do with the trust. So most of the multi-level marketing leaders had people that they knew, whether they were colleagues or friends. But it's also the timing and the person. So I think they do deliberately target people that are vulnerable because when I was approached, at that time, my father was uh, father passed away. So I was really grieving, quite vulnerable. And I, I, my leader knew I had money and he knew I had cash in my can. And I was looking to buy a property because I used to go to him for advice and guidance. And he, you know, he's got property background. So he knew I had the funds. He just had to convince me to depart with my money because I was going to get better returns with a short amount of time. And he's a friend and really cares for me. And it's also the um, Muslim lingo. It's inshallah, God willing. I care about you, you know, life has been really unkind to you. This is your time to make a difference. So I think for me, he was like, oh, he really cares for me. He knows me so well. And I've known him for 12 years. I don't have no reason to doubt him. And I think that's how I started really believing. And uh, my bad point here would be it's the digital access to banking as well. It's just having cash in the account and being able to just do online banking. That was made his life really easy and quick because it went from my account straight to his account. So he didn't go to a one-point account. He went to his account directly. Mm. So you see, can I can I just add, because there's, there's something really important and it's weird that it's taken me to write a whole book to come up with a very simple answer to that question, Carl. How could so many people want to put so much money in so quick when they didn't really understand it? And you probably sat around the table, uh, Layla, because I know a lot of people that did. And friends and family would say to them, oh, listen, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. You've got to be careful. The problem is Bitcoin had gone up so fast, so quickly, that a lot of people were so fearful. The fear of missing out on the next Bitcoin I think it sort of overrode all the rational considerations that people might have had that might have slowed them down. We always talk about humans as being having a loss aversion. Like we're very we're more worried about losing something we have than gaining something we haven't got. It almost flipped here because the loss in the minds of the OneCoin investors was the loss of changing your life, of buying a new car, buying a new house, going on a nice holiday. And Nobody was really interested in 10%, 20% returns a year. They wanted 100x. They wanted to change their lives. They wanted this amazing stuff. And the fear that you could miss that and the urgency, the clever marketing that you've got to buy right now before the coins are going to go double or they'll go up in value, it'll be too late. You need to hit this target. Those things all combine to make it almost like a sort of perfect perfect scam we do need to clear up one issue now i'm i'm conscious that most people listening to this will have listened to the podcast many millions of people did you know I've, i'm sure one of one of the most important and and most highly listened to podcasts that, that's ever been made in the uk but there might be someone here that doesn't know what the one coin kind of scam was really about they've probably heard multi-level marketing and cryptocurrency and ponzi scheme but just before we go on jamie Back to you. Can you just sketch out, clearing away all the hype and the pitch for a second, and tell us, when with all of that gone, what was OneCoin in its in its in its essential state? In its essential state, it was a combination of three scams rolled into one. It was a 
a multi-level marketing product sold in the way I've just described. So you'd sell to your friends who'd sell to their friends who'd sell to their friends. But instead of selling vitamin tablets and shampoos and coffee, you were selling the next Bitcoin. You were selling this amazing new cryptocurrency out of Sofia, Bulgaria, run by this genius businesswoman with a PhD in law called Dr. Ruja Ignatova. So this thing is growing very, very quickly. You can make money on your commissions by selling it to other people, or you can just sit still and let the coins you bought just go up in value. And go up in value, they did. Because investors would be going and checking the price of their coins every week, and they'd see it would go up to $1, $8, $12, $30. And Dr. Ruja and the other promoters were, were promising that very soon, you will be able to go onto a public exchange site and turn those coins you've bought into real money, into euros or dollars or pounds or whatever. And people were waiting for that to happen. Now, some people did make some money from the commissions. Some people even turned a small proportion of the coins into euros and actually cashed them out. I estimate that roughly 30% of all the money that was pulled in was paid out in one way or another. But then Dr. Ruja in October 2017 vanishes into thin air after taking a Ryanair flight from Sofia, Bulgaria to Athens, Greece. And we realize that the whole thing is just a sophisticated but old-fashioned Ponzi pyramid scheme. The coin value that she claimed, the price of this coin was just made up by her. The powerful technology she promised she had, the Bitcoin killer, the improvement to Bitcoin wasn't real. And the payment promise of going onto an exchange and turning it into euros never happened. And so investors even now are left with, in some cases, what they believe is millions of euros worth of one coin sitting on an account somewhere, but they can't do anything with. It's valueless. So it's the US authorities have described it as an old fashioned Ponzi pyramid scheme, but with a modern digital twist. So Leila, you joined the kind of our story has began really with you going to that one coin event, electricity in the air, so many people so excited about, you know, this new Bitcoin. Take us through the kind of dawning realization that you had that, that something was amiss. You know, when did you begin to fear that this amazing opportunity wasn't quite what you initially thought it was going to be? So I thought I was investing in the cryptocurrency called OneCoin, which, which, which is a digital something like similar to Bitcoin. And I, because of my lack of knowledge on tech and cryptocurrency, I didn't really do my research. It's only when I started learning about financial education and the training that was supplied through the OneCoin educational packages, I just, it, it just didn't make sense. It just, the levels that I was doing, the trainings that I was doing, it didn't make sense. And also my leader started asking me to recruit people, attend hidden seminar, turn up at seminar in a, in a secret hotel room, with other people, not to disclose any information. And then they also started creating a WhatsApp group with leaders, top leaders. And any question that I would submit to them, I would get blocked or I would get ignored or I would, I would be told not to question too much because, you know, I'm being very negative. I'm being very, really uh, pessimistic. And I think for me, it's also um, the pattern of my leaders' behavior. For someone who's been really honest to someone who's been very dismissive, in denial and not answering and telling me to shush, it just didn't make sense. And he was also clearly over-promising over -promising me and under-delivering such as, I promise you, you can withdraw your money by December 
or by February 2017, all the amount that I put in. So I was I've put in exactly fifty thousand two hundred, and over various packages, and that was that includes my mom and my brothers. And my leader had seven of us recruited, so all friends, we all know each other, and he pocketed £72,000 from all of us. And I think my alone was 54200 And um, we uh, we really thought we invested in cryptocurrency, but actually the red flag started happening when it w- we weren't able to access our account, and then the coins were moving around, and he was renaming them, and he was also telling us what he was doing, that he was telling us to recruit that he was going to give us free gifts, holidays, and every week we had to hit targets. And with each targets, we get commission. And that really made sense in this is not cryptocurrency. This is actually multi-level marketing. You know, the only way to make money is through commission and to lie to people, to deceive people. So for me, it really literally took two months because I was really interested in learning into cryptocurrency. I was educating myself. And through education, I realized the patterns of behavior. So I understand this is a this is a painful thing to talk about later, but what did it feel like that the people that were involved, both in bringing you in and that you were investing on behalf of, were, were immediate family members? Because this, I mean, that had to add an additional angst or, or, or horror or grief to to the whole experience. I think because my family knew him very well, they kind of trusted him and trusted me, and you know we had that kind of bond. So when I actually encouraged my family members to invest, they just thought Leila's right. You know, she you know she's she's looking after us. But then they knew him as well. So I think for me, it was a lot of distrust, anxiety, heartbrokenness, lots of pain and anger, and I wasn't able to reach him. He wasn't communicating with me. He was easily dismissing. And I think that just built a lot of um, negativity in my heart and lots of distrust and helplessness because I did literally give him everything that I had, thinking that I've invested in cryptocurrency and not in the Ponzi. Jamie, give us a sense of the human costs. I know you've traveled around the world kind of talking to people like Layla who who were roped in all over the world. Like, What, what, what happened to people that, that, that suddenly realized that they'd lost... In some cases, everything. I think it's the it's the shame as much as the money. It's the this is what I think makes Ponzi and pyramid schemes, especially pyramid schemes with this recruitment technique, so damaging. More so than a normal investment scam, you might put your money into something you've seen online. The money doesn't come back. You might get your bank details stolen and you're fraud you're defrauded of money. But this is different. This is you're actively involved in recruiting the people you care most about. And so there's a shame. And I think that is why people, it would take that they'd be a lot quicker to invest than they would be to let it go. Some people would see the warning signs and they would not want to admit to themselves what had happened. They doubt, they'd fear somewhere deep down that this wasn't right, but it was easier to carry on because that would require you admitting you had scammed your own nearest and dearest. It's more than just the money, but the money does matter too, because I've spoken to people whose whose lives are just devastated. They've got nothing left. They've lost all of their life savings. They put everything into this and their families too. And this is in every country in the world. There was a story recently. It can get really, really dark and serious. Ponzi and pyramid schemes that fail are known to be accompanied by people killing themselves because of the shame. There was even a story recently, it's not just about the people that invested, a story recently of, was over a year ago now, of two Mexican OneCoin investors 
who were promoting it to people who turned up dead somewhere. We don't know what happened to them, but the speculation is they'd ripped people off. People wanted their money back. Listen, you told me to invest. Where's my money? And they haven't got the money. And this chain of like responsibility where it is you are both an investor but also a promoter is what keeps it really stuck and people can't leave easily because of that responsibility that, that they have. So the human cost, I mean, you're talking about... I've worked out that this, this, the number of people that actually made money from this was, was very, very small. You had to be right at the top of the pyramid to have made a few thousand people. Everyone else, let's say between 800,000 and a million people, were ordinary retail investors, normal people who'd got 5,000 euros, 10,000 euros scraped together and couldn't get it back. And, you know, that can be, that's life-changing. Whereas the people at the top are driving Lamborghinis. The difference between the top and the bottom, it really is shaped like a pyramid because you go to the very top, the, the highest sort of level of the one coin pyramid, the black diamonds who were really the sort of the, 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 the people that had downlines of hundreds and hundreds of people that were selling. And they were earning, you know, you could be earning a million euros a month. Driving around, yeah, driving around in Bentleys and Lamborghinis. And that it was always, you always saw that and thought, that is, that is what I could get to. I could be up there if I work hard enough. Yeah, you're right, you're right, Jim. And also, Carl, you know, at the event, they started bringing in all these diamonds in order to promote and be a motivation speaker. So all the other leaders and people that are trying to invest thought, oh, you know, that could be me tomorrow. If I work hard, I'll be like that. Because they were getting in diamonds who are wearing designer clothes, who are flashing cars and just saying, you know, ordinary life is boring. You don't have to be ordinary. Be extraordinary. So kind of giving people excessive hope. Who wants 20% returns when you can 1,000x? Well, I just want to kind of step back from the story just for a second to kind of reflect on, you know, uh, these stories often always kind of say something wider and more general about the kind of world we're living in. And firstly, just about, you know, even though... You know, Layla, Jamie, both in your different ways, you know, you've, you've done all this brilliant work to kind of highlight the kind of potential of, of cryptocurrencies to, you know, rope people in and lose them a tremendous amount of money. We've seen the crypto crash recently and, and with it, the exposure of, of schemes which perhaps were slightly more technically sophisticated or camouflaged than one coin, but, but essentially seem to amount in many ways to lots of people losing lots of money and some people gaining lots of money and running away. Like, is there something about the world we're living in now, crypto, like uh, how impatient we all are, that, that is kind of creating these kind of spaces for, for not just Ruger, but lots and lots of mini Rugers to actually be, 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 be kind of emerge all over the place? Jamie, your thoughts first. Yes, I think it does tap into a wider, it's almost like investment culture. It's almost as if you don't, you don't make money, life-changing money, by doing your sort of diligent research on a company's books, you know, carefully putting a bit here, a bit here, and diversifying your assets and all the rest of it. You make big money if you're in quick, if you get in early, if you're the first one, if you get a tip-off. That seems to be technology, startup, venture capital culture, but also cryptocurrency culture. 
And that has been true for a lot of these projects. And it seemed reasonable. When Rouge stands up there and says people are going to turn 5,000 euros into 100,000 euros in a matter of months, it seems it seemed reasonable because that is what people saw happening all around them. And I think the reality is as well, if you're a, a multimillionaire and you're Warren Buffett, 5 or 10% return on your investment yeah that's pretty good that's i get that that's not bad you're going to earn a, what's that going to do if you're earning if you're earning a few hundred pounds a month what's 10% going to help you how's it going to help your life it's not it's not going to get you where you want to go so you combine those two things together and there you are and then you layer a technology on it and we do live in a world where no one understood the tech but everywhere we look technology seems to do magical things it seems to transform the world. It helps me get to the shops every day. I can communicate. It's a magical, magical thing. So if someone turns up with a new technology saying, this is going to transform the world, 50 years ago, you just said they were a mad person. Now you think, great, another pioneer, another visionary. But I do also think that Rouge benefited from the fact that the crypto world generally was so dominated by men that she turned up as a woman in this... Uh, a lot of people invested because they saw a woman at the top and they were excited by the fact it seemed like quite empowering to have a female crypto leader at last. Maybe had the crypto market been a little bit more diverse, she wouldn't have stood out. And some, you know, that's that's a sort of an aside, if you like. But the the, the you've got to see one coin in the con the wider context of how we see other people making money. And it made one coin look normal. Does this all charm with you, Leila? Yes, absolutely. It, it, they did touch base a lot at the seminar and at the event. Everything's digital. Digital is the way forward, whether it's, you know, WhatsApp, Facebook, all the kind of applications. So it seemed very convincing. You know, the way forward is cryptocurrency. You were going to be pounders. We're not going to be de dealing with cash. It is digital. And there was also that pressure of, you know, trying to sign up and invest by 1st of October 2016. So my leader got me to invest as much as I could because my coins were going to be double. My crypto packages were going to be double. So I was going to miss out. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, technology allows brilliant Intelligence Squared Plus events to happen as well. So, so but, you know, it really does create magic. Um, right. Um, Jamie, back to you. Um, I, I, th there's another big issue I think your investigation raises for me. And, and, and this is what happens when journalists begin to... Um, investigate and 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 tell truths about powerful people. Now it seems like there are certain phrases in the book, certain uh, tracks in the book where you've had to be like extremely careful about exactly what you can say and exactly what you can't say. And I imagine right now you're also going to have to be extremely careful about what you can and can't say. But it definitely did remind me of. Um, this wider theme of libel law and defamation, a series of journalists obviously have, have, have been fighting very high-profile cases recently around all this. And how, what was it like to actually, actually make a series of allegations? And you know, not just about Ruger, of course, but there's a whole slew of law companies and 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 financial firms and banks and stuff that are involved in this in this story as well. Oh yeah, honestly, it's just it's it's been the hardest thing I've ever worked on by 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 a mile. When we first did the podcast, the main 
the main people we were going to all the time was OneCoin. We had to go to OneCoin. It was still a company and sort of put allegations to them, which they their response, they responded and we added, we put the responses in because that's partly, it's legal, but it's also BBC editorial policy about fairness and balance and giving the rights of people to, to also reply. That was, uh, that was sort of simple in a sense. As the story expands, more and more different people come into it. And your job as a journalist is to try to understand the whole picture and how it works. And it does, it does really, it does make it difficult. And people who read the book will see bracketed such and such denies such and such, or you'll see it throughout, dotted throughout. And it's, it's an important part of doing this job. But I'll tell you what, it does make you as a journalist really quite paranoid. You... I'm, I've been walking around for the last few months just really sort of worried all the time. Oh, my goodness me, what if I'm going to get this happen to me or that happen to me and I get this thing wrong and these people are going to write this letter to me? And it's, it just makes you nervous. It makes you feel, as a, as a journalist, you're paranoid and you're, your tendency is often to self-censor because you don't want to get dragged into these things you don't you, you you're not wealthy individuals as a journalist you don't you can't afford to do all of this and i think a lot of a lot of places have they understand that companies like onecoin i think understood that and they would it's a way to put it is that onecoin would 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 sometimes use law firms to to do that so in a way, it was easier for me. I've got to give more credit to the people that were trying to blow the whistle on OneCoin in 2015, 16, 17, 18, before the podcast. This book, a lot of it, is actually about the ordinary people that got together to try and bring this down and were posting about it, saying this is a gigantic Ponzi scam before I'd even heard of it. They didn't have top lawyers. They didn't have all, you know, they didn't have all the stuff that the BBC has, but still they would... They would write about it. And that's that's a real bravery because, you know, you're kind of out there on your own. And I know some of the critics that were, put, were getting law, were letters for lawyer, from lawyers threatening them. And that is, well, not threatening them, but saying you, you need to do this or do that. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying when you get those letters. So it's it's a wider it's a wider problem I think in journalism at the moment goes beyond the scope of this book but can you see I mean look I'm just absolutely you see the bags under those eyes that is from writing this book Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event, and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the Value Revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the Industrial Revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. What do you think this says about the British establishment, about law firms, banks, consultants, experts, within a couple of miles of where, where, where we are now, who were receiving money and helping to forward and defend a scheme which was not only illegal, but like I think in the eyes of many of its critics, patently illegal and connected with all kinds of dodgy, shadowy elements across the world. What OneCoin was very good at doing, I think, was because it operated in so many different jurisdictions, there was no one single authority that could definitively say it was a scam, this is illegal. 
because every jurisdiction it operated had a slightly different legal system. Many regulators didn't say anything about it. Cryptocurrencies were unregulated. Ruja herself calls this the legal gray area. And she says, I'm brilliant at working in the legal gray area. That's my specialism. And I think what it sometimes says is that there's a, there's a reason that London became like a second home to her. You know, London is, is sort of set up in some cases for the legal gray area. And lots of very, very specialized, technical, brilliant minds are helping companies work in that legal gray area. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a shame because I think a lot of other countries look to London and especially places like the Financial Conduct Authority that need to be leaders as a financial hub, leaders in making this kind of investment safer. And um, I think we, we've, we've failed really on that score. Okay, well, on that chastening thought, it's time now for all of you to get your questions in. So thank you for the, for the avalanche which, uh, which has poured in. Layla, to you first, what happened uh, to your relationship with uh, the family friend that you had? There was no relationship. As soon as I caught him, I asked him for money. That was it. It was the end. So we're not in touch. He's blocked me on all sort of um, social media. He still has my number. I haven't changed my number. He knows my bank account details. He can easily just return my money. Because the money that I sent didn't go to one coin account, it went straight to his account. And I have proof and I have evidence and I've done a BBC panorama based around my story. Oh, so he was actually scamming not only you, but also OneCoin? Yes, yes. And he, uh, when I actually uh, reported to OneCoin, who were um, firstly cooperating with me, they actually denied anything they did wrong. They blamed my leader. They said, it's, yeah, he, he's, he's done fraud to you. He's lied to you. He's misled you. Go after him. So they kept passing me around. Wow. Okay. Thank they you. always blamed the leaders, OneCoin. One, you'd phone OneCoin HQ and they'd say, oh, it's the leader's fault above you. Go and speak to them. Oh, so they, they would say, we, we haven't... Passing of responsibility all the time. Yeah. I see. Okay. Jamie, one for you. Dr. Ruja, was she linked to larger networks, organised crime, or acting by herself? <laughs> Oh my Not my question. This is a question for an audience member. Oh my goodness me. It's a really difficult question because as at so far, no one from organised crime groups has come forward and given me an on-the-record interview where they admit their connections. But there is quite a lot of pretty good evidence that suggests that she was, she was pretty well connected within Bulgaria and within some of those circles. If I can just put it that way, it's hard to stand these things up, as we say, journalistically. My best bet, though, is that it actually started off that she was acting alone. Her and Sebastian Greenwood and another man called Yuhar Pariala, another top promoter, got together and designed this, thought this is going to be a really clever little thing. It probably won't get that big, but we'll make a decent amount of money. It will collapse, but we'll blame. You know, we tried our best. It's not our fault. Crypto speculative. It grew so fast that suddenly she's in possession of hundreds of millions of dollars. And at that point, other networks kind of basically join because they can see all of this money and they, they, she can't really operate without the support of wider groups of people. Well, this is a question to both of you, actually, next one. It's a brilliant question. Who ultimately bears responsibility for making sure this doesn't happen again? Jamie, let's start with you, because, I mean, you, you gave a kind of fiery plea there for the Financial Conduct Authority and, in general, the kind of regulators in the UK to kind of be on the leading edge of kind of protective regulation and other things, not inhabiting a legal grey area. So 
Is is it to those organisations that that you now look for ensuring that we don't see OneCoin 2.0 or 3.0 emerging in a couple of years? We're already seeing these. There's there's already sort of clones and almost identical type companies popping up all over the world, and they'll be based in other jurisdictions, but they'll be selling directly to UK consumers. So it's really, really difficult when you're talking about these sort of global scams that can target people in every country. I do think the regulators need to be more proactive. They need to try to... Do you remember when legal highs started becoming a big thing? And what would happen is one legal high drug would be banned and one week later, one chemical compound would be changed and that wouldn't be banned and they'd start selling that for a week. And then in the end, they kind of put a moratorium on a class of... a sort of class of drugs... I think anything where you're sort of combining cryptocurrency with multi-level marketing, for example, you could almost put a moratorium on that and say none of those things should be sold to retail investors ever because it doesn't work. So regulators need to do something. I also think the problem is that the responsibility at the moment seems to be geared up to the towards the money launder, you know, the money launderers, the heads of the company, the people that were committing the wire fraud. It's never the promoters. The promoters are sort of forgotten about because they're sometimes because they they bought and sold. So it's hard. But maybe there's a case that if you can prove that promoters were knowingly mis-selling products, you need to you need to it would be good to be able to sort of secure a couple of convictions on those grounds, which might encourage other people to think twice before promoting. Because at the moment, it feels like the promoters are often the ones that there's a frustration that promoters never seem to have any consequences whatsoever. I agree with that, Carl, because I think it should be a regulators as well as the policing, such as actual fraud, but also definitely the middle person, which is the promoters themselves. Because the money that I actually transferred for cryptocurrency one point, it didn't go to OneCoin account, it went to my leader and I had evidence, back statement, I had his account frozen. So had the uh, police got involved at that time, I probably probably could have uh, retrieved from my money. By the time he escalated, he already got all the money out. He just moved on, but there's been nothing done about him. He's just moved on to another Ponzi and he's still doing it. So I think if they, there was a successful case, people would be much more fearful of be, being caught and actually be really seeing where Ponzi is. And I think the promoters are getting away with it and they're just finding different, different businesses and still doing the same thing. So victims will remain victims. Is it for both of you then kind of ultimately kind of criminal sanction against the individuals and organisations involved is really the only thing to kind of clear these kinds of kind of stuff off? Because because it just 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 before I go to you, Jamie, because Leila, it was it was two days between you going to this event like almost as by chance and investing, and it doesn't feel like that was really you know if they'd put out like warning circulars or had done any kind of like more like kind of softer behavioural kind of like communications about this. It doesn't really feel like that there was enough time for them even to really have got any kind of message to you. Yeah, it, it just happened really fast. And I don't think I've seen any signs of actual fraud or FCA posting one coin, be careful, it's dodgy scam. I think it just happened really fast. And by, when it did happen, it was too late because then we found, oh, actually they did post something, but then they cancelled it. And I'm thinking, why? So we didn't stay active for too long. Now we have scams everywhere. To me, all it is is about slowing them down a bit. I don't think we're going to stop them. And I don't think any any amount of anything I've said will override this fear of missing out when you see Bitcoin go up and you want a piece of the action. 
it's just about doing things that might slow its growth a little bit, you know, maybe reduce by 30% the number of people that invest. But if you could reduce by 30%, 1 million people that are investing in this, you're saving a fortune. So that's the best I hope for. Well, talking of FOMO, that leads us on to our next question, which is about the, uh, the, the, uh, the heart of so much FOMO, NFTs. So the question asks basically, are NFTs, can NFTs be basically used in the same way as OneCoin? The questioner says, I see all these famous people endorsing NFTs and then they drop in value. And for those that don't know, there's all these, you know, a huge kind of global celebrities that have endorsed various NFTs that have, that have been part of the kind of big crypto crash, which has happened over the last, uh, say, several weeks to a month. Jamie, is OneCoin found a new form in NFTs? If I were to design another OneCoin type Ponzi scam now, it would probably involve an NFT. Hyped up, exciting, massive valuation. People don't understand the tech, but they see credible people talking about it as the future. Uh, And you'd sell it through multi-level marketing again. And people would buy, people would invest. I think NFTs themselves are a fascinating idea. The idea of digital scarcity as a concept has fascinating uses. Invariably, though, the latest exciting tech gets picked up, and there are already NF- plenty of NFT scams out there. Uh, Sarah, thank you for your next question. She, she writes, feel very sorry for Layla. Did victims ever get any money back? Does anyone know where it went? I'm going to cut that question in half. Layla, you first. Did, did you ever get any money back? No. no. Okay. My money is with my leader in his bank account. And, and do you have any hope uh, of getting any recompense? No, I, I don't have any hope unless the uh, unless action fraud gets involved and does something and we pursue a criminal case. Otherwise, he's moved the money and he's gone into a different scam. Okay. And, and Jamie, in terms of where it went, there's a kind of fascinating part of all of this, which we haven't had time to discuss yet, which is actually the kind of Finero funds and the kind of whole kind of elaborate kind of like laundering and, and move. Because Ruja faced a huge problem, didn't she? That she had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars sat in these bank accounts you know, which looked illicit and dodgy and scary for banks that she needed to get out of there and, and move to places where people couldn't get it. So do, do, do you want to spend five minutes telling everyone about, about, about that side of um, the scam? Huge amounts of money is a big problem for people when you're pouring in millions and millions of euros from all over the world. Banks want to know what on earth you're doing with it. And the, the key is often you need to turn it into sort of usable assets that are legitimate. You do not want your accounts frozen. Rougier often faced a problem with her accounts being frozen by banks, including in Dubai and elsewhere. So her corporate corporate lawyer, who is an investment fund manager from the US, he set up a series of $100 million investment funds called the Fenero Funds that Rougier was taking the money from the investors and then putting it into these very, very sort of legitimate looking investment funds where it was used to buy property and you know, shares in companies. How, how much are we talking overall? Three, like, about need to $385 million, I think it was, something like between 380 and $400 million. But there were other ways the money was spent as well. She, she, so she, that, that sort of worked surprisingly well. A lot of money went through that and out the other end, and she was able to spend it and buy assets. Now, a lot of those assets are frozen, but a lot of money is still unaccounted for. Hundreds of millions is unaccounted for, dotted around in banks all over the world. We're still trying to figure out where it all is. And the difficulty for people like Layla is 
it takes a very long time to find it, to freeze it, to then work out how you begin to return it to victims. Is it based on the amount you invested? You've got a million people around the world that maybe are asking for money. Who gets what, when? Which country's in charge of it? There's so many difficult questions. I know there are efforts underway. Jen McAdam, who is in the podcast, uh, the BBC podcast, is also working on efforts to sort of get victims together so they can try to get a fund going that anything's frozen could then be redistributed. But it's, a, it's hard and it's a very slow process. All right. Well, there's a couple of questions here which I'm going to bundle, which I think are quite predictably about Ruja. Um, why did she disappear? Where is she now? Um, is her being added to Europol a game changer? And Jamie, when is the next podcast episode coming out? Right. I thought I might have a question. I was surprised. I was thinking it's 10 minutes to go and no one said, where do you think she is? <laughs> <laughs> right. Next podcast episode. Something like two... What were you enjoying? Yeah, two to three months. Something like that. Some point in the late summer, I think. Why did she disappear? She disappeared, I believe, because she she learned that she was about to be arrested. She wasn't planning to disappear forever. She was planning to come back. The German authorities, who'd been investigating OneCoin for a very long time, for nearly two years before she disappeared, raided her office in Sofia. And I think, this is my theory, that she realised that she wasn't going to be coming back because this was serious and then she moved around she went from place to place and i've got a few we've worked out and it's in the book where i think based on my best guess and the evidence we've seen where i think she moved around to so i think she is still out there i think i got an idea about where at least until recently she may have been she is obviously traveling under fake documents with a with a new face and a fake name and a large amount of money, of course. But you've got to remember, it, is, it isn't as difficult to disappear as you might think. Not if you've got a lot of money, you've got all the right documentation, and you're extremely careful and you plan for it. If you look at Europol's list of most wanted people, there are people that have been on the run for years and years and years they've been on that list. People have, looking, have been looking for them and they've never been found. Now, there is a possibility. I, it's difficult with this because I'm always obviously asked that. And you've got to read the book, really, to see exactly how I've come to the conclusions I've reached. But it's, it's a guess. It's, a, it's my best guess. It's possible. She does, have a, she does have a weakness for super yachts, doesn't she? Like, do you think anything about her, like, level of lifestyle and the kind of, like, myths she's painted about herself? Is that a vulnerability at all? I think that she would still be living the lifestyle that she had been accustomed to. This was the number one lesson that the private investigator we had working with us said. She, if she likes fancy food, top-end restaurants, total luxury, every time I've been looking for someone in my career, they ca they're still living the same way. So, and, and, and she was actually quite family-orientated in many ways as well. So I don't think she's that far away. I don't think she's, uh, I think she's still with us. We've had too many quite credible sightings to make it seem she's just, she's, she's dead somewhere. I'm not gonna give it all away completely, 
but uh, but I think she's she might have even had logged in and she's watching this from uh, from somewhere. Right. Um, let's let's hope so. If, if if she is, I hope she's bought the book by oh, now. Oh, sorry, Europol. Well, I do think it's a bit of a game changer for a couple of reasons. Now she's got. She's on that Interpol red notice list, so 193 countries or whatever it is are sort of under some obligation to arrest her if they see her. And she's on Europol's most wanted list. And there's now a kind of German arrest warrant out for her. And they've, put, they've been putting up wanted posters all over Germany. So she, her movement, at the very least, will be more constrained than ever. She will know now there's people really seriously looking for her. So if nothing else, it makes her life a lot more difficult. The German authorities have said they've received 30 tip-offs of varying quality, they say. 30 tip-offs. And hopefully, one coin is still being promoted out there, you know. And hopefully the fact that she's appearing now on the Europol's most wanted list, any possible investor, you send them that email and say, really... There she is on Europol's most wanted. Are you really sure you want to invest in this currency? Look, it won't stop everyone, but it might just, again, slow down slightly the number of people joining. Leila, last question to you, and, and, and on it, let's look to the future for a moment. Uh, have, you been, uh, have you been able to kind of move on? Like, it, you know, is this in your past now, or, or are you still kind of carrying the kind of scars and like memories and I mean, traumas of all of this? Uh, interesting question. The scars and the memories are still there. So when I do think about it, I do go through episode of darkness, anger, you know, self-hate, humiliation, and then you know, there's a lot of self-blame. But I think I've learned to keep my faith going because I am a devoted Muslim. So I try and, you know, think about the positive positivity, you know, COVID, I'm not dead. Life is, you know, life is about moving and less and less. So I think for me, as I'm talking, I'm healing, so I'm using my time much more wisely and learning from the mistake that I've made, the gullibility, the naivety, you know, trust. So it's made me much more vigilant, so I'm much more scam aware um, to give people my money. I'm completely not interested in any cryptocurrency or online investment, keeping my 9 to 5 job quite comfortable. But psychologically, I did get through counselling lots of moral support. My faith is very important to me. So I think that kind of helped me kind of to move on and accept. But the pain hasn't really disappeared. Unless I get my money and, you know, this this matter is closed and people are um, given justice, I don't think I could actually move on from it. But I'm moving forward, not on, but moving forward. I'm trying to achieve better things and be much more grateful in life apart from just money. I've lost money, but I haven't lost myself. Thank you, Leila. That's, that's, that's a really inspirational and wonderful reply. Thank you. Finally, Jamie, to you, because of course this event is actually about the book as, uh, rather than the podcast. And I, I, the first event, I, I believe, this is really the kind of premiere of, of the book, just released. Uh, despite being of the same name as, as the podcast, I, I found it actually kind of extremely different. Do, do you kind of want to talk a bit about what you were doing in the book ver- like vis-a-vis the podcast and like how you were trying to move the story on? And, and forwards. Yeah, because I, wa- I wanted it to be different, partly because um, I'd spent, I- I'd been spending so long on this story. I've been spending so my whole life was one coin and I needed it to be different. And I also felt like the B- we, we got quite a lot of credit at the BBC for ha- helping to expose it. But the reality was there's a lot of other people that had worked before us like I said, these armchair detectives and citizen journalists who've been trying to expose it for a very long time. 
and I didn't want it I didn't want the book to be like look what we did at the BBC we found this and we discovered that because uh, I felt like that would also take quite a lot away from all the the much more interesting story of ordinary people trying to bring this thing down so I don't even appear in the book until like the last 20 pages I'm hardly in it at all. I'm, I thought what this story deserved was the kind of beginning to the end, like uh, just looking down at what was going on. The story told sort of objectively in the third person so I could see what was happening um, because it is that like it is quite a fast paced drama. You know, what actually happens and how quickly it grows and, and, it, and how quickly it collapses. And it just felt like it needed to be written as one of these kind of page-turning crime, true crime thrillers rather than about us making the podcast and, oh, I went for a coffee with Georgia in October 2018 and we talked about this, that and the other. So I tried to make it different and I was very conscious that there's a lot of people out there that really liked the podcast and wanted, you would have wanted to go into a bit more detail. And the thing about podcast is you can just, you can say a question, you leave a question hanging unanswered whack a bit of music on there we had this really cool bulgarian music and no and everyone no one cares but with a book you've got to be really comprehensive you've got to try and dig into every tiny little detail and fact and so it was a very different process doing it well the book is it's it's genuinely brilliant i i, I thoroughly mean that i've got my thumbed copy here and I heartily commend everyone listening to this. I can't believe there's anyone that hasn't listened to the to the podcast or hasn't got the book by now. So, uh, Layla, Jamie, thank you so much. Um, thank you for everything that you've both done uh, on this story. And um, thank you, dear audience, for all of your wonderful questions. I'm sorry I didn't quite get to all of them at the end, but uh, thank you for writing as many and as and as uh, and as uh, as brilliant ones as you did. I've been Carmelo, of course. This has been Intelligent Squared. 